0: Is our American stories. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke to the United Nations General Assembly in New York not long ago, and it was such a compelling speech, we thought we'd bring it to you. And for a reason, what Netanyahu's talking about here, the disease that impacts the Middle East, Israel, and the United States, and that's militant Islam, was at the core of this address. And so was the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And nobody's a better storyteller about such matters because Bibi Netanyahu has lived this. Let's take a listen.
1: When the United Nations supported the establishment of a Jewish state in 1947, it recognized our historical and our moral rights in our homeland and to our homeland. Yet today, nearly 70 years later, the Palestinians still refuse to recognize those rights. Not our right to a homeland. Not our right to a state. Not our right to anything. And this remains the true core of the conflict. The persistent Palestinian refusal to recognize the Jewish state in any boundary. You see, this conflict is not about the settlements. It never was. The conflict raged for decades before there was a single settlement when Judea, Samaria and Gaza were all in Arab hands. And when we uprooted all 21 settlements in Gaza and withdrew from every last inch of Gaza, we didn't get peace from Gaza. We got thousands of rockets fired at us from Gaza. This conflict rages because for the Palestinians The real settlements thereafter are Haifa, Jaffa, and Tel Aviv.
0: Israel itself, he's saying. And by the way, we love the way Netanyahu tells the story of the problems that surround Israel. Netanyahu continues, he does not dismiss the importance of settlements, but he shines a light on another much less discussed obstacle to peace.
1: Now mind you, the issue of settlements is a real one. And it can and must be resolved in final negotiation, final status negotiations. But this conflict has never been about the settlements or about establishing a Palestinian state. It's always been about the existence of a Jewish state, a Jewish state in any boundary. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel is ready, I am ready to negotiate all final status issues. But one thing I will never negotiate, our right to the one and only Jewish state. Wow, sustained applause for the Prime Minister of Israel and the General Assembly. The change may be coming sooner than I thought had the palestinians said yes to a jewish state in 1947 there would have been no war no refugee or no refugees rather and no conflict and when the palestinians finally say yes to a jewish state we will be able to end this conflict once and for all now here's the tragedy because You see, the Palestinians are not only trapped in the past, their leaders are poisoning the future. I want you to imagine a day in the life of a 13-year-old Palestinian boy. I'll call him Ali. Ali wakes up before school. He goes to practice with a soccer team named after Dalal Mugrabi, a Palestinian terrorist responsible for the murder of a busload of 37 Israelis. At school, Ali attends an event sponsored by the Palestinian Ministry of Education honoring Bacha Alyan, who last year murdered three Israeli civilians. On his walk home, Ali looks up at a towering statue erected just a few weeks ago by the Palestinian Authority to honor Abu Sukar, who detonated a bomb in the center of Jerusalem, killing 13, Isra- 15 Israelis. When Ali gets home, he turns on the TV and sees an interview with a senior Palestinian official, Jibril Rajoub, who says that if he had a nuclear bomb, he detonated over Israel that very day. Ali then turns on the radio and he hears President Abbas's advisor, Sultan Abu El urging Palestinians, here's a quote, to slit the throats of Israelis wherever you find them. Ali checks his Facebook and he sees a recent post by President Abbas's Fatah party calling the massacre of eleven Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics a quote heroic act. On YouTube. Ali watches a clip of President Abbas himself saying, we welcome every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. Direct quote. Over dinner, Ali asks his mother, what would happen if he killed a Jew and went to an Israeli prison? Here's what she tells him. She tells him he'd be paid thousands of dollars each month by the Palestinian Authority. In fact, she tells him the more Jews he would kill, the more money he'd get. Oh, and uh, when he gets out of prison, Ali would be guaranteed a job with the Palestinian Authority. All this is real. It happens every day. All the time. Sadly, Ali represents hundreds of thousands of Palestinian children who are indoctrinated with hate every moment, every hour. This is child abuse.
0: And child abuse it is. And when we come back, we're gonna hear more from this Netanyahu speech at the UN. And we'll also hear the story of Micah Avni's father, who was killed by terrorists in Israel He wrote an amazing column, and he recorded it for us. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Stories And we continue with Prime Minister Netanyahu's General Assembly speech given earlier this year at the United Nations General Assembly. And Americans need to hear this story of Israel and the countries that surround it, and particularly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which as a Lebanese guy and an Arab, I've never understood this word conflict because the Jews would love to settle things But the Palestinians have at the core of their covenant and Hamas the destruction of Israel. Pretty hard to negotiate with somebody who wants to destroy you. So we were just listening to a part of that speech. Let's continue with Netanyahu contrasting how Israelis raise their children with how Palestinians indoctrinate theirs.
1: We in Israel don't do this. We educate our children for peace. In fact, we recently launched a pilot program, my government did, to make the study of Arabic mandatory for Jewish children so that we can better understand each other, so that we can live together, side by side, in peace. Of course, like all societies, Israel has fringe elements. But it's our response to those fringe elements. It's our response to those fringe elements that makes all the difference. Take the tragic case of Ahmed Dawabshe. I'll never forget visiting Ahmed in the hospital just hours after he was attacked. A little boy, really a baby, he was badly burned. Ahmed was the victim of a horrible terrorist act perpetrated by Jews. He lay bandaged and unconscious, as Israeli doctors worked round the clock to save him. No words could bring comfort to this boy or to his family. Still as I I stood by his bedside, I told his uncle, This is not our people. This is not our way. I then ordered extraordinary measures to bring Ahmad's assailants to justice. And today, the Jewish citizens of Israel, accused of attacking the Dawabsha family, are in jail, awaiting trial. Now, for some, this story shows that both sides have their extremists and both sides are equally responsible for this seemingly endless conflict. But what Ahmed's story actually proves is the very opposite. It illustrates the profound difference between our two societies. Because while Israeli leaders condemn terrorists, all terrorists, Arabs and Jews alike, Palestinian leaders celebrate terrorists. While Israel jails the handful of Jewish terrorists among us, the Palestinians pay thousands of terrorists among them so I call on president Abbas you have a choice to make you can continue to stoke hatred as you did today or or you can finally confront hatred and work with me to establish peace between our two people's Ladies and gentlemen, I hear the buzz. I know that many of you have given up on peace. But I want you to know I have not given up on peace. I remain committed to a vision of peace based on two states for two peoples. I believe as never before that changes taking place in the Arab world today offer a unique opportunity to advance that peace.
0: And that again was Benjamin Netanyahu, and nobody tells that story better. And as promised earlier, we'd now like to share with you a story from Micah Avni. He's the CEO of Peninsula Group Limited, ranked among the 100 most influential people in Israel by the Marker Magazine in 2015 and 2016 and he's raising four children with his wife in Tel Aviv. But this story isn't about Micah the leader, or even Micah the father. Let's take a listen to Micah, the son of a great man. And we got this story from the Wall Street Journal. Micah had written a column called, The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young. We called up Micah. We were going to interview him but we thought it would just be better if he read and performed that column. And he did. And we bring it to you now.
2: My father, Richard Lakin, a 76-year-old retired elementary school principal from Connecticut, was on a bus in Jerusalem last October when two young Palestinian men boarded and began shooting and stabbing passengers indiscriminately. Two passengers were killed that awful day and 16 injured, including my father. Despite the efforts of first responders and the nurses and doctors at Hadassah and Karim Hospital, my father died two weeks later. He had been shot in the head and stabbed multiple times in the head, face, chest, and stomach. It was horrific. Over the past year, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what would cause two educated Palestinian men in their 20s to board a public bus and butcher a group of innocent civilians, many of them senior citizens. I'm sorry to report that the Palestinian reaction to the attack has led me to believe that the peace process is more one-sided than ever. My father grew up a fighter for civil rights in America. He took those values with him in 1984 when he emigrated to Jerusalem, where he taught English to Arabs and Jews. He was a kind, gentle-hearted man who dedicated his life to education and promoting peaceful coexistence. Yet Palestinian newspapers praise Baal one of the terrorists who murdered my father, as a martyr and intellectual. Palestinian Authority President Muhammad Abbas has met with the families of the attackers and praised them as martyrs. A Palestinian scout leader said Ba Alian, who was shot and killed by a security guard before he could kill more innocent passengers, was an example for every Palestinian scout. Mohammed Alian, the father of Ba Alian, has been invited to speak at Palestinian schools and universities about his son, the martyr. He recently spoke to children at Jabal Muqabar Elementary School in East Jerusalem, about a half a mile from where my father lived. Tragically, many Palestinian children, perhaps most, are still taught to honor terrorists and fight for the destruction of Israel. All this would break my father's heart. In 2007, he published a book called Teaching is an Act of Love, summarizing his life's work and educational philosophy. The message of his book is that every child is a miracle that should be nurtured with love. After Baal Yann's father visited Jabal Muhabbar Elementary School, I asked school officials if I could come and share my father's message of peace and coexistence my offer was rejected as long as palestinian leaders nurture a culture of hate encouraging school children to go out and kill more violence is inevitable by encouraging hatred they distance all of us from the love and belief in peaceful coexistence for which my father stood my father's book begins with a quote from william penn i expect to pass through life but once if therefore there be any kindness i can show or any good thing i can do to any fellow being let me do it now and not defer or neglect it, as I shall not pass this way again. My father lived by those words, if only his murderers had as well. Thank you.
0: And thank you, Micah, for writing that. And what a remarkable thing. So the terrorist's father in in Palestinian territory is invited to go into schools to talk about that hero's son who murdered innocents. And when Micah asked to talk, In that same school about his father, a peacemaker, he is denied. And this is what the world is up against. And we won't be afraid to call things by their name here on Our American Stories. And as someone who came from Lebanon and who understands the difference between peaceful Muslims, the majority, and radical Islam, which is a a poison. And it's a poison that, well, I don't know how else to get rid of it, but through Battle and through education, and you can tell Jews have been trying to do this, well, since practically their formation, and it just, it's not going well, and America's learned about this, well, we've learned about this since 9-11, particularly. We learned about it first when the World Trade Center got hit in 1993, but we just sort of passed it off, and now it's happening with increasing frequency in our great country, And this is what binds us together. Well, so much binds the great countries of the United States and Israel together that that's why we include Israel in our American stories and what's going on there. These are two countries bound together by a value system, by Judeo-Christian heritage, by free enterprise, and so much more. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Micah Avni's reading of his column from the Wall Street Journal, The Anti-Israel Poisoning Starts Young, and we team that up with Benjamin Netanyahu's great speech at the United Nations. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our weekly Marriage on the Mind segment with our marriage coach, Deb Wolniak. Deb is the former executive director of Great Marriages for Sheboygan County in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and serves on the board of the National Association of Relationship and Marriage Education. And if you have any marriage questions or stories for Deb, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and leave your message there, and we'll make sure to get back with you within 24 hours. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And this week, Deb brings us a conversation she had with a couple named Jerry and Donna, a couple who had been through a lot before they met each other.
3: Jerry and Donna, how long have you been married now? They're counting. <laughs> I got to. Six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks. (laughs) So you'll have to listen. Hey, I get it. You know, you're like, how many days has it been now? I mean, some people count years, but yours is six weeks. But your journey has been a lot longer than six weeks. And uh, we're going to get into what your story is. But before we do, I kind of want to take both of you back um, to tell me your story from what life was like when you were a child.
4: My life when I was a child, I was raised in a foster home and had a very rough life. I was abused in a foster home most of my life.
3: What age were you when you first went into foster care? I was two. Two years old?
4: Yeah, and I bounced throughout five foster homes. My dad was an alcoholic. Okay. He was never around. Okay. My mom couldn't take care of 16 kids. So most of us went in a foster home. She did what she had to do. Um, I love her for what she did. It's my father that was yeah. always gone and drinking and was yeah. never around, so we had to go to foster care.
3: Well, Donna, how about you? Tell us about your childhood.
5: Um, I'm the youngest of four kids. Uh, my father was very verbally and physically abusive. Um Um, I was sexually assaulted by my sister and my brother. When my mom passed, my dad became an alcoholic. He became even more so abusive. Um, I ended up running away from home. Mm -hmm. At age 16, he beat me so bad that the principal of the high school actually let me leave school and shook my hand and wished me good luck. And just let you go? Let me go. And you had nowhere to go at that point? I had nowhere to go, which I went to court, and my dad lost his parental rights, and I was put into a children's home. Um, I ended up in a foster home, which they basically used me as a babysitter, and as I got older, the foster dad became sexually aggressive to me. Oh, no. So I left there and ended up going back home to my dad. And that didn't last very long. So how many years later did you
3: guys meet after that point then? Now you have to really count. (laughs) Actually, we
5: just met three years ago.
3: Um, In the meantime, what were you thinking about life? Were you like, oh, I'm just going to live my own life, that's it? Or what was your theory on life at that point?
4: I was going to live my own life and do what I wanted to do.
3: Okay. So independence was
5: valuable to you. Yeah.
3: What about you, Donna? Same thing.
5: Really? Survival. Okay. Just take life one day at a time and basically survive. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually at that point, I was to the point where I was saying I wasn't going to look for anybody. Yeah. I was tired of looking. I was tired of being disappointed. Right. Um, The men that I met out there, as far as I was concerned, were either alcoholics, drug addicts, or abuse I didn't have that trust. Right. Um and I when I met him, I was to the point where I was I was leaving it to the fate of God. If it's to be, it will be. Yeah. And Jerry and I both have learned and have increased our faith so much since we've been together. And the one thing that we've come to the conclusion is if it's meant to be and it's in God's eyes, it will be. Not the way you want it to be, necessarily. Right. right. It's not the way you want it to be. Obviously, there's a reason for it. You don't know what it is, but eventually it'll make sense. And I've,
4: I've gone to church every Sunday since I met her. Really? Yes.
0: Jerry and Donna dated for three years and were thinking about getting married, but their past trials had brought wounds into their relationship that made them uncertain. So they took part in Great Marriages for Sheboygan County's Prepare and Enrich program in which they were mentored by another older couple who has successfully navigated their marital challenges. Deb picks up the story there.
3: I I want to just hear from you guys what that was like.
4: Uh, Let's see. We went in on the first day and found out our mentors, Tom and Sue. First day, we walked in there. They thought the same thing I thought, which was when we walked in there, we should have never, ever been together at all. We It should have just never been. And after we went through the whole thing and we got everything all said and done and and, and took the whole course that we were supposed to take, to this day they are amazed when it came to our wedding even on how things turned out. And they're everybody's so happy for us. Oh, yeah.
3: Did it help to have a guy and a girl coaching you guys? Yeah, it did. Yes.
5: Because neither one of us grew up with parents as good role models. Oh. And that's a big key. If you don't have that mom and dad marriage to show you what a marriage should be like, then you have no clue. Yeah, And if you don't know, you can't react, respond, or... Work it out. I mean, you yeah. can't do anything because you don't know what to do. Great marriages was the cake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really helped us to understand each other better. Mm-hmm. Did it give you a chance to heal from some of the abusive situations you went through? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know with mine, well, um, the way my father would talk and certain words that he would use and even just the tone of his voice. Jerry has a lot of similarities. Mm. Wow. You know, I felt like he was just, Mm -hmm. he was my dad. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want my dad around. Right. You know, and I had to understand, you know, this is who he is. He's not a mean man. He's not abusive. He's not after me. Yeah. Like my father was. Yeah. So just because he says something one way doesn't mean it's the same way as my father said it. That's you know, it's kind of like texting somebody. You can text something, and they totally misunderstand what you're saying.
4: Yes, so true. Yes, you know,
5: yes, and you really have to clarify yourselves. Yeah. I mean, you really do.
0: And when we come back, we're going to talk to Deb. And my goodness, I sometimes I just you, you hear stories, and particularly that foster story, and you just you wonder how people cope and manage. Um, but the healing power of relationships, and of course, and we cover this time and again on the show, God plays a big role in so many Americans' lives. Many not, but many it does, and we we don't shy away from it when it does play a part in folks' lives. And when we come back again, we're going to talk with Deb Wolnyak about Jerry and Donna, about their struggles, about mentorship, and all the great things that she does, working with married couples. Marriage, a big subject here on Our American Stories. It's the institution that matters most in the country. doesn't have a bad name uh, particularly, but it doesn't have a good name particularly. I think people are sort of blah about it, blasé about it. And we want to dig in and let people know that a good marriage, well, there's nothing more important. Sets the foundation for a family, for kids, and for love. This is Our American Stories, Marriage on the Mind. When we get back, Deb will join us. Leslie Habib, and this is our American Stories, our Marriage on the Mind segment. As always, we're joined by Deb Wolniak in the second session. We hear from the couples in the first only first names, I and mean, this is private stuff. It's confessional stuff. Sometimes you feel like you're eavesdropping, and you shouldn't be. Every once in a while, I get that feeling. Of, I shouldn't be listening to this. It's not right. But I'm glad I am because I'm married. Anyone who's even not married should be listening to this. We all have relationships. And thanks for joining us, Deb, as always.
6: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: You know, if something interesting comes up in this first question, I've always wondered about this, Deb. Maybe you can answer this first by digging into the general idea, and then we'll get into the specific case. But in Jerry and Donna's very first great marriages session with their mentor couple, that mentor couple was actually having a fight between themselves. (laughs) And so what I always found interesting being a mentor couple is, look, You're not perfect. What happens when the couple you're mentoring is in better shape than you are? (laughs) And it's got to happen sooner or later because marriage is never just a straight road. Uh, What do you do in that case? Do you, like, recuse yourself? Do you go in there and let them know what's going going on in your marriage, the mentor couple, and then the mentees are mentoring you? What happens? Talk about that.
6: So Here's the scoop. We always, always tried to uh, match up when I was at Great Marriages. The couples would be older, 20, 25 years married or older. In this case, this couple is um, close to 50 years married. So they definitely know marriage. They've endured a lot. And this couple was far younger in their uh, even relationship walk because they were within that first two to three years of their relationship together. So um, I love the mentors there because and a lot of people that are involved in the Prepare and program around the country, they're, they're honest. You know what I mean? They're honest about, you know, who they are as humans and, you know, they make mistakes or they have struggles too. And guess what? Here's the irony about marriage. The struggles that you have in your marriage makes you stronger and better as you weather through them in a healthy way. And one of the biggest struggles that Americans have nowadays is they don't necessarily know how to be married well, how to communicate well, how to look at differences and respect even some differences that you're going to have to agree to disagree on, but to even come to a point that if you're standing there in front of your children and they're watching what's going to go down and they're just hoping that mom and dad could work it out, whether you're married or not, they want to see a relationship that is working together as a team. And this is one of the reasons why I love Jerry and Donna in this piece is because they're really honest, not only about their past, but I love this mentor couple that was able to come around them and just be honest in front of them and say, listen, we got to work this out. And they came back the following week after agreeing to finish the conversation outside of that room and at home They came back and said, listen, this is how we resolved this situation. And Jerry and Donna were really impressed. They said, listen, that was probably one of the first times we've seen somebody come full circle on an issue of an argument together and be united and that you don't have to be afraid of it, that you can work it out and it can make you stronger as a couple.
0: And so they got to see firsthand a real fight and how the couple negotiated, and ultimately settled that fight.
6: Yeah, and that's refreshing, isn't it? It's like we don't have to worry about the floor dropping out from under us, that we can say, okay, let's take the emotion out of it. That's one of the things you have to do is pause a second and really know, okay, let's look at this step back and look at what are the details of the situation. Listen to the other person as they're talking, as they understand it, verbalize it back to them. I hear you saying and repeat it. And if there's any misunderstanding, get that out of the way so that you clearly know what you're talking about and can come to full conclusion together and decide things together. And you can see it. When you see couples that are working together like a team, it's amazing. And and to have like a healthy conversation and no one's like raising the roof. Wow. For some families, that's really foreign. Normally, you know, for some It's about the yelling. Like, I got to be heard. But there's something else that's going on underneath there that people have to slow down and maybe get some extra coaching to really learn and understand about themselves because every couple is unique.
0: Yeah, and in your longer conversations with Jerry and Donna, they talked about the things they did to clear the channels, of communication between them. What are a couple of those tools, Deb, that our audience can learn from?
6: Yeah, yeah. So one of them I mentioned is, you know, kind of – being able to unplug the, the excess energy out of that conversation to be able to sit down face to face. And in some cases, hold hands and look at each other eye to eye. If you get a physical posture that basically says, I'm listening to you, I'm hearing you, I'm ready to receive what you're saying. It may not be easy, but I want to talk this out and be able to get to that point. That's really good for some couples. That is such a big first step to get to that point is going to be difficult but let me tell you what if you can try and say you know if the next time we have a conversation at that i want to sit down in this kitchen in these two chairs i want to face to face hold your hand i really want to hear you well deb you yeah. know how
0: hard it is to scream at somebody if you're sitting across the way from them and you're holding their hand i mean it right. sort of makes it really tough
6: yeah yeah now, okay, let's just pause because I can hear some people screaming in the background, but you don't know my spouse. Yep. Yep. I get it. I get it. Some people are not at that point yet. Again, the coaching does help out. But for those of you that want to try this out, I really want to encourage you to take that moment. But if, if you need that extra space to process, I want you to talk to your spouse and agree on that in advance. Listen, when I feel really heated I need about five minutes to process in a different room and I'm not trying to ignore you. Can we agree on that? Yes. Okay. And so what is your signal? though? Say, give me a moment. And the other person acknowledges that go in the other room, take that five minutes. If you have to breathe it, do some breathing exercises or go walk around the house and get some fresh air, come back in, sit down in your spot to communicate and really be able to learn how to love that person they just communication. Now, even if it's something simple, like, well, you know, you don't close the cabinets in the kitchen or I wish the dishes were washed or who's taking John to soccer or whatever. Let's make sure that you give yourself the space to do that. So many Americans are running so fast on a schedule. They don't even have time to even call their spouse on the phone, let alone be in front of them. But I'm going to tell you, this is why our lives need to change today to make sure that we can build a solid relationship for the long term. And these pebbles and investments that you make into your marriage will pay off dividends. Trust me, if you do it once and then, you know, continue to try, you will be surprised at how your marriage will start to strengthen and trust gets built and love goes deeper. And don't we all want that?
0: You know, alcohol was something that played a big role in Jerry and Donna's childhood and they told you how they both swore off drinking but not because they're alcoholics. Why did they stop drinking?
6: So the 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 piece on that is um Jerry and Donna saw how destructive that um issue with uh alcohol was in their parents um in their in this case the fathers um and and really caused some additional damage and some poor judgment of not only how they were abused or neglected, uh, but how it really broke a family apart. And addiction is a huge challenge for many people. And I'm telling you, it doesn't even have to be an alcohol addiction. Anything you're doing to self-medicate, and that could even be playing tons of hours of video games. It could be watching tons of TV shows in order to just self-medicate and not have to deal with the other person. And believe me, there's a lot of people doing that. Yep. In our culture, just to save face so they can at least just try to live under the same roof. It's gotta stop. We gotta get to a better spot. And believe me, the person that you married, you married them for a reason. And I'm telling you, they are a treasure. And I, if you take the time to look and you continue to work on that together, you will find something new. And addiction is a serious issue in our country and we do need to get help and we need to be honest and call it out.
0: We got about a minute left. We got about a minute left. Deb Donna's daughter from a previous marriage loves Jerry so much that she asked Jerry to do something that every father dreams of doing. Tell us about that, and what listeners should take away from this most unlikely of stories you brought us.
6: Well, you know, even with that, she her, she had experienced a brokenness in the, the first relationship with her father, uh, her her birth father. And she came to Jerry and she said, would, would you also be my dad? And he was so thrilled about that. To have, have that moment as a man, to, to know that you've gone through a huge life change over many years and just struggling to, you know, know what is a father like? That is one of the biggest compliments that someone would come to you and say, you know, would you be my dad and help me with that role in my life is, is one of the best things ever. That family is close. They love each other deeply, and I wish you all could meet them face-to-face because they are truly an inspiration.
0: Well, thanks, as always, for what you do, Deb, and we look forward to the next installment. And we're talking, as always, with Deb Walniak, our marriage coach for our Marriage on the Mind segment, Jerry and Donna, this week. And I love their voices, love their story, and it was a tough story and a tough one to listen to in parts. As always, Deb, thanks for your work. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and check out all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You can download things, you can stream, you can go to this day in history segment in the topics area. I think we've got about 150 of them there, maybe more. Again, this is Our American Stories. Our American Stories And we hear a lot about drugs in the news But what we never hear about Is how these drugs get made The blood The sweat The tears that go into them All the scientists All the dollars All the tests And more tests And all that goes into the making of these drugs Before they ever get into the bloodstream Of patients But now we bring you one story, the true story of one doctor turned entrepreneur, we discovered this story on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and his incredible fight to get a life-saving drug into the hands of patients.
7: Cancer is the second biggest killer of Americans and you often can't see it coming. Sometimes you don't even notice as it eats away at your body. The best you can do is hope that your doctor identifies it early. And if you don't detect the cancer early enough, it might spread from just a few cells on one organ to the whole organ, or to lymph nodes, or even other organs. Bladder cancer is no different, and the number of Americans it attacks is staggering.
8: About 75,000 new cases of bladder cancer occur every year and over half a million people are walking around um, with bladder cancer.
7: The cancer first attacks just the outer layer of your bladder. It's called superficial bladder cancer. Okay, the the average age of someone diagnosed
8: with bladder cancer is 73. Most cases of bladder cancer are superficial. And if you can cure them, they won't progress to advanced disease and kill the patient, right? So there are 16,000 deaths from bladder cancer. In the US. So the trick is if you can catch them early, if most of those 75,000 per year, most of those cases are, are early stage, if you can catch them early and treat them effectively, you're going to cut down on that
7: death rate. Luckily, there's a drug to treat superficial bladder cancer before it progresses to invasive bladder cancer. And it's remarkably effective. Even so, for two out of 10 patients, the drug will fail. And they will still have cancer. And if you are one of those two, your only option used to be a cystectomy.
8: If it progresses to invasive, you need to take out the patient's bladder. And
7: living without a bladder is no duck walk.
8: Taking someone's bladder out is a horrible thing. You know, they have to self-catheterize. Sometimes they try to, the doctors try to give what's called a the neobladder. They make a, a small pouch of bladder from a piece of your bowel and it's, it's you know you're prone to infections you're it's so, it's so it's horrible it's horrible for patients and even at that the patient will ultimately die of the bladder cancer um because you, you you know it's very hard to get
7: everything but what if cutting out your bladder wasn't the only thing a doctor could do what if there was a miracle drug one that could prevent you from living with a catheter for the rest of your life and it would save your life wouldn't you want to try a drug like that Well, that drug exists. It's called Valstar, and bladder cancer patients have been hearing its name for over a decade now. But Valstar almost never made it into the hands of patients at all. And it wasn't because it was too expensive. This is the story of one small pharmaceutical company and their fight to save the lives of bladder cancer patients. Their story is so incredible that you have to hear it from the horse's mouth. The voice you've been listening to is Dr. Joseph Golfo, who is the chief operating officer of the company that created Valstar, Anthra Pharmaceuticals. And we start his story and how he came to Anthra. The VCs, the venture capitalists, the big money guys, who had backed Anthra, knew that they had a great drug. But they were having problems getting that drug to the market. So Anthra... It was a company that
8: was founded by the uh, Mervyn Israel. Mervyn was at uh, Harvard. And uh, when I showed up, it was basically a restart. The um, the VCs um, did not like the way things were progressing. They really didn't have anyone in the company who um, had my kind of background. So they basically, they, I think they had up to 16 employees, and they just restarted the company.
7: Dr. Goffo already had a job he loved, but Anthra offered him his dream job. How do you turn down um, to go and be the number two
8: guy at a venture-backed company? Um, you know, when here when he I wanted to, I was getting an MBA, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run these little biotech companies.
7: Yet all too soon, Dr. Golfo learned the difficulties of running a small business. As it turns out, it's not as easy as it looks on TV. I now know why Jesus picked 12
8: apostles. When you have a little company, uh, just by force of will and your presence walking around the halls, you can touch everyone enough. They can get a piece of you. They can understand, you know, know that you're honest and, and trustworthy and follow your lead. You know what happened? Then we hired the 13th employee, and all hell broke loose. There's a magic number. <laughs> I'm saying it's 12 to 13, where one person just can't manage the group anymore. And it was, you know, I would do a lot of traveling. I'd go visit the clinical sites. I'd go visit various experts as we were moving this along, raising money, doing all this stuff. And when we only had 12 people, by the time I got back, whatever petty problems there were, people could just keep it under their hat and then come talk to me about it, and then I could solve the problems. But I will tell you, on the hire of the 13th employee, all hell broke loose.
7: Unlike Jesus, though, Dr. Golfo could hire an HR manager to take on the extra help. And soon they ended up expanding to nearly 30 employees. And Dr. Golfo would need all of those colleagues for the trial that was to come, because it would be one of the most defining trials of his life. And it'd all be to save the lives of patients he didn't even know. Dr.
0: Golfo's challenges didn't stop at just putting together a great team of great scientists, and marketers, you're going to hear about one of the hardest challenges of Dr. Golfo's career, and it nearly killed Valstar before it was ever able to help its first patient. That story, the rest of the story, after this break, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the incredible true story of one doctor, his drug, and his quest to save lives. We just heard Dr. Joseph Golfo talk about how incredibly deadly bladder cancer can be and how his drug, Valstar, can save lives like no other drug can. Now listen as Dr. Golfo tells you not just how hard it is to make a drug, but how hard it is to get that drug approved by regulators because it's that challenge that determines not only his career, but those of his 30 employees and the lives of thousands of patients.
7: Valsar's story, like every drug story, starts when a scientist, in this case, Dr. Mervin Israel, gives birth to a Eureka moment, a birth that's the beginning of a very long life. Uh, You know, once you decide,
8: okay, Let's let's move them further. You have a lot of preclinical work to do, right? So first, you have to get them manufactured. Not easy. They have to be manufactured according to good good manufacturing practices, which is expensive. Next, you have to do um, toxicology studies, right? So you have to do um, various uh, animals, mice, rats. Sometimes you have to do higher order animals, like with bladder cancer and the bladder. You have to do dog studies because dogs have a, have, a, have a bladder much like humans in sensitivity. You then have to um, do all the uh, cancer testing, you know, it may susceptibility testing.
7: If Valsar were a child, at the end of all that testing, he would be about to start kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> ha 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 ha! Quiet and you would still just be getting going.
1: Thanks for the tip.
7: Before the drug gets into the hands of doctors and the bodies of patients, it has to go through the Food and Drug Administration, better known as the FDA, the government agency that assesses the drug's safety and effectiveness based on clinical trials, which can take anywhere from one year to eight, with an average of four or five. And those trials have to prove safety and effectiveness through what's called a claim which means that the drug achieves the results it claims to. Determining what that claim will be and what those clinical trials will measure and how it will measure them and who will measure them and how the measurements will be measured all starts with a relationship with the FDA. The FDA and the company have a meeting and if they can agree on the claim and the trials, the company should be set up for a smooth approval process.
8: We had a fantastic relationship with the FDA. The, the, we were doing everything they asked us to do. We had a letter agreement. A letter agreement is when you meet with the agency and you exchange meeting minutes, our version of what happened at the meeting, the FDA's version of what happened at the meeting, and you work out any differences, and then the FDA would write you a letter saying, okay, based on our meetings, well, it is our understanding this is what you're doing, and, and the agreement, okay, if you if you if you have a complete response rate of 20% or greater, that would serve the basis of approval so we went and did um, about a 100 patient trial there were 93 patients at the end of the trial and we proved that we had a i think it was a 22 percent
7: complete response rate think about that for a minute a complete response is the cancer going away completely that's pretty incredible for a drug testing that took years four years actually and Valsar would now be eight years old. And like any eight-year-old who can't support himself, someone has to nurture that child into the future. And that job fell to Dr. Golfo. At the end of all that nurturing, you present that child to the FDA's panel meeting for approval. Most, however, won't even make it there. Only one out of every 10 drugs will. Only one out of 10 will even be considered for approval. Doesn't that sound like a great industry to be in? but it's their dreams to drive them on. Dream on, dream on, dream on, dream on. Dreams of driving health to new heights. All those years and all those millions come down to just one day before the FDA panelists, who didn't know it as a baby like Dr. Golfo did, will decide whether or not Valstar will be allowed to go out into the world. And so in preparation of the FDA panel meeting, Dr. Golfo tried to look at Valsar through their eyes. And he found inspiration in an old show.
8: Put myself, like, remember there was a show called The Pretender. Um, I'm trying to pretend I'm a statistician and I'm going through the data the way I I believe statisticians will. Next, I'm going to go through the data the way a medical oncologist will. Next, I'm going to go, and and so this is what I did to myself. I basically put myself in in the position of that person. And, you know, <laughs> even the way they breathe and eat, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, just, I just immersed myself in those characters as I was going through the data the way they would. And uh, and so I, I basically went through the data through in five different
7: ways. Dr. Goffo also studied the panel members, like lives depended on it. Because they did. I went to the prior six
8: advisory committee meetings, and I watched them. I didn't just watch them. I studied them. I watched for all the nuance, all the way people's response With the way I was trying to predict body movements, like you know what what this panel member, uh, what their body language says about the way they vote, about just 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 studying FDA people. I just I just studied it, just studied it, and so much so that the last one, now I'm getting nervous because you know ours is ours is uh, coming close. The last one I went to. I got so close to the front of the room, you know, there's like a big U-shaped table. My right thigh was was pushing on the corner of the table, That so much so that I was irritating two panel members who kept giving me dirty looks because I was in their psychic spaces. It's like being on an airplane, right? I didn't give a
7: damn. Something that's easier to say when you're in the audience, harder to say when you're the presenter before that panel. As Dr. Golfo universally noticed...
8: Every company, it doesn't matter who they are, Merck, BMS, doesn't matter, little companies, big companies, the people who present are afraid. And they get up there and they show their fear. They grab those, they grab that podium as if it's a shield.
7: They could be afraid for many reasons. Maybe it's a fear of public speaking. But most of all, it might be the fear that the truth may not set them free. That despite all the compelling data in the world that's behind them, Despite ANTHRA meeting all the FDA's conditions for approval, he might still lose. Back in Valsar's time, 1998, the chance for approval just at that meeting was only 74%. Overall, only one of every 10,000 drug compounds that scientists create and test will go to market. One out of every 10,000. You have to care a whole heck of a lot to put up with those odds. But back to Dr. Golfo. no matter what, he was determined to show the FDA that he wasn't afraid of them. I am not gonna use the podium.
8: I'm gonna stand in the middle of that U-shaped table. I'm gonna look each one of them in the eye. I'm gonna non-verbally communicate with them. You can't touch this. You know, I'm gonna be MC Hammer, okay? There's just no way they can know this better than I, and I'm I'm gonna blow them away, okay?
0: You can't touch this. You can't touch this.
7: Although his team had something else to say about his podium idea.
8: Can't touch this. So my team said to me, Joseph, we love everything you're saying except one thing. Please use the podium. (laughs) I said, all right, I'll use the damn podium. But I'm not going to be intimidated.
7: The panel meeting he's here for is set up just like a criminal trial. Well, almost. You You have to understand, panel meetings are
8: theater. They are criminal trials is what they are. What you have is you have a huge room. It's typically 500 people watching. You have the prosecution, which is the FDA. You have the judge, which is the FDA. Okay, So the FDA decides on procedure. They decide what's valid and not valid, and they are the prosecution. You have the jury, which is the advisory committee panel members. And you have the defendants, which is... (laughs) which, you know, which is the
7: drug company. Just like any real trial, the defendant is judged by a jury of his peers. The defendant's peers in Valstar's case are urologists who treat the bladder. Those urologists can also be called to the stand as witnesses. Or at least, they're supposed to be able to. Though I asked them not to, the FDA
8: scheduled the advisory committee during the American Urologic Association meeting. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is no urologist worth his or her salt, meaning anyone who publishes, okay, is not going to be at the American Urologic Association meeting. That means that the FDA can't get urologic consultants and I can't get urologic consultants to come to my meeting.
0: And when we come back from the break, you'll hear just what happened to Dr. Golfo and his team and what that meant not only for his company and for pharmaceuticals, but also thousands of patients in need around the country. When we read this story in the Wall Street Journal, it read like a thriller. And my goodness, the stakes are high. And he's going before that panel, those judges, that jury, more after these messages. This is our American stories. The story of a drug, a drug company, and the battle to get that drug to market. is are American Stories, and we're back with the amazing and true story of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and its life from inception in the laboratory to when it finally gets into the doctor's office, or at least we hope that's how this story will end. In Washington, regulators put drugs on trial in order to determine whether they get out into the world or not. And as you are about to hear, this trial is made for TV, but isn't like one you've ever seen or
7: heard before the FDA was judging a disease that affects 70,000 people per year but it ensured that no urologist would be able to make it for the trial in a real trial the defense would object and make sure that the witnesses could come but this isn't a real trial it's the FDA so what can he do
8: what would Merck do in that situation What they would do is they would pull their NDA, they would retract it, and they would, you know, talk to the analysts and say, "Well, heavens, we're not gonna, we're not gonna put our drug for X, Y, or Z before a panel where no one treats it." What would happen to their stock price? Nothing, (laughs) because they have 80 products on the market and four others coming up for review. You know, they know how to play the game. How about a little company running out of money? What are you going to say to investors who want to believe the story? Why did you pull your NDA? Oh, are they going to believe me, my version? Of course they're not going to believe me. So we had to go through with this.
7: What if Dr. Golfo pulled his NDA, his new drug application? If little companies like Anthra started giving up on their drugs and pulling their applications for them, it would mean that more than half of all new drugs approved each year wouldn't exist. They just wouldn't exist. June 1st, 1998. It's now the morning of the trial. The day-long event will start in just hours. And Dr. Golfo has a horrible feeling.
8: And I remember waking up that morning and just doing my final prep, and I started shaking. I mean, literally shaking, because I saw on the laptop the two icons, the IPO roadshow icon and the advisory committee uh, slides icon. And it just hit me in that moment, right before I'm about to go up for the biggest thing in my life. How crazy this was. This is nuts. Being about to run out of money unless this is successful is crazy. And then I learned, no, that's biotech. Okay, that's biotech.
7: And that wasn't the only thing weighing on his mind.
8: It was interesting. There were personal things going on, too, because my parents were not very happy with me because I wasn't seeing patients. I'm an MD, right? Trained. They paid for it. Um, And what did I do with this MD? I'm a paper pusher now. (laughs) I'm a finance guy now. I'm not really helping people. You help more people, by the way, in industry than you do seeing patients. You get drugs approved, to treat, the billions of people. But nevertheless, they didn't want to hear that. So what I did was, you know, they weren't too pleased with me over the years. I called them up and I said, you want to see what I'm doing with my MD degree? You want to see? Why don't you come down to D.C. and watch your son go up against 12 of the smartest people in the country? You know, I kind of put it in their faces.
7: And with that, they walked into the FDA's courtroom. With all the bankers and financiers, employees and staffers, doctors and scientists, spectators, journalists, and his parents all watching him. Dr. Gofo said a prayer. And then it began.
8: Well, we we go to the panel meeting, and, um, you know, God was with me. I, I presented. I I gave a a flawless presentation. Everything I wanted to do, I pulled off. It was clear, it was crisp. Panel members had maybe two or three questions. I handled them the way I should, and uh, I was really happy with myself.
7: Dr. Golfo's prayer was answered, and his months of insane preparation had paid off. But now, it was the prosecution's turn.
8: So then the FDA person gets up to, to present. And on slide three of his presentation, his boss had to interrupt and say, excuse me, panel, um, that number 37% really should be 45%. Okay, fine. A few other slides later, some other thing, some bulleted point about something, the boss interrupts the presenter, the FDA presenter says, excuse me, panel, um, we met on that, no, what really should say there is, but babe, okay, fine.
7: Twice now, the FDA had misrepresented facts to the panel. For whatever reason the FDA in charge of promoting and protecting our health couldn't get their presentation straight but they weren't done yet
8: and then the third time you know a few slides later again this is in front of 500 people panel you know the, 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 the intensity in the room the tension okay third time third time the boss interrupts the presenter and says well i'm sorry to say this is clearly a prior version of the slides this slide shouldn't even be in the deck so please ignore it
7: as if the fda's prosecution wasn't shocking enough dr golfo couldn't believe what happened next
8: so the, the panel chair says will dr golfo come to the microphone so there's two podiums There's, with a microphone, right? There's the fence podium, right? The company podium and the prosecution or FDA podium. So I go up to my podium and I don't know what's coming next. I, at all the panel meetings I ever went to, this never happened. So I, I'm, I'm nervous. And so the panel chair says, Dr. Golfo, not that podium. So I walk around to the FDA podium and I get there again, you know, like like, like a deer in the headlights. I'm just looking at, at the panel chair, uh, Barbara Dutcher was her name. And I'm looking at Dr. Dutcher, and she looks at me, she says, Dr. Golfo, we would like you to present FDA slides. So now I'm asked, I'm asked to present the case against the company, because that's really what it is, the prosecution.
7: This was the first time anyone's ever heard of this happening at the FDA, being asked to testify against yourself, because the FDA is unable to do the job. When Dr. Golfo finished, again, the panel adjourned for lunch.
8: So at lunchtime, the head FDA reviewer comes up to me. And again, I'm being I'm, I'm being I, got, I got people I don't even know of telling me how phenomenal this was. I got, I got investors, p- p- potential investors. I got VCs who are in the room who are current investors. I got bankers. I got lawyers. I'm just being inundated. I got to go to the bathroom yet, too, because I got <laughs> to present more. But anyway, so I you know, tap on my shoulder, and it's the head FDA reviewer. And he says, Joe, you have a minute? I said, do I have a minute? I said, you're God. Okay, you're the FDA. Do I have a minute? Of course I have a minute. So yeah, let's go. So we go over to the side, and he says, um, "He says, I got three things to tell you. He said, number one, that was a phenomenal presentation. Thank you. Number two, you're an honest guy. He says, you presented your bad equally to your good. He says, and we really like that. He says, "In number three, he he motioned me to get closer, whispers in my ear, you've got it in the bag.
7: The head judge and jury foreman basically told him that the afternoon session where the panel members would deliberate over the drug would be a formality. He was practically guaranteed approval. But there was a problem. The way an FDA's panel deliberation works isn't exactly the same as a real court trial.
8: The problem is no one can say a word. Only FDA can say a word. The the the, prosecu- the, the defense can't say a word. So you're going to listen to their jury deliberations as they talk about X, Y, or Z. Then there's going to be a vote. So it, it's 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 a trial, but it's you know it's 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 a trial in Russia. Okay. is this is not a uh, this is not this is not American justice.
0: After the break, you'll hear what the FDA's final verdict was. Would Valstar get to save lives of folks with bladder cancer? Or would it go into the trash? The final chapter of this amazing story. Next, this is our American stories. The birth of a drug. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Joseph Golfo, then COO of Anthra Pharmaceuticals. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our final segment of the incredible true story of the life of the bladder cancer drug Valstar and the doctor turned entrepreneur Joseph Golfo, who is fighting for Valstar's life. As we pick up, we're waiting with Dr. Golfo for the FDA to render their final verdict on this drug, and we're about to learn that regulators in Washington don't always make the right call. And the wrong call can have devastating effects
7: on everyone. The panel meeting is called back to the courtroom for the final session. And then this. I can't say a word.
8: The jury, the panel members who don't treat the disease start talking about the product. And at one point, one of these individuals slapped the table. And he says, I don't care how good these data are, complete response, again, which means totally eradicating the disease, complete response is the completely wrong endpoint for this disease. And I can't say a word.
7: But complete response, total reversal of the disease was the very endpoint that the FDA had agreed to for Valstar, regardless of whatever this doctor thought. And remember, the FDA had refused to schedule this panel meeting so urologists could attend, urologists who actually treat the bladder and who would actually use the drug. But instead, the FDA invited this doctor, an oncologist, who didn't treat this kind of cancer and who wouldn't use this drug. And he believed it didn't matter if this drug is effective. And it didn't matter if this drug means that folks won't have to get their bladders removed and that patients won't have to spend their life peeing into a bag. He had a different set of beliefs about how cancer treatments should be considered
8: he was saying that it doesn't matter if you completely eradicate the disease what matters is did the patient live longer in his view now that's not right in in bladder cancer if you eradicate the disease and you stave off cystectomy that's the gold standard that's what you want so you know, he's an oncologist, and he was talking about other diseases. And by the way, I don't even agree when it comes to other diseases. But this was a position
7: that he wanted to advance. And beliefs, even bad ones, have real-world effects. So it was, it was the Johnny
8: Cochran moment. When you have someone who speaks with authority and is a bit domineering and projects great personal authority, the others are lemmings. The others just follow. So, what happened was they took the vote
7: 11 to 0, unanimous no. 11 to 0. Dr. Golfo went from having in the bag to, with his one comment, losing it all. He was blown away and humiliated in front of his peers, co workers, and maybe worst of all, his parents, who had come to watch him save lives and instead watched his career crash and burn before their very eyes. So Dr. Golfo does what any man would have done. He confronted the doctor that sabotaged the trial. I said, I said, what are you doing? And he
8: said, well, you know, I, I wanted to make a very, very important point about the way, about the way the College Drug Advisory Committee really should look at um, cancer. I said, and you picked my meeting to make that point?
7: Yes, this doctor chose the trial of a new drug to make a general policy point about the FDA. And worse, a very controversial policy point. But none of that mattered anymore. What was done, was done. And now it was Dr. Golfo's time to get confronted. My
8: parents come up to me and my father says to me, let me buy you a drink. And I said, I can't, I gotta get to the airport. I I, I gotta get to the airport. And uh, he said to me, I remember him getting very angry at me. He said, after what I just watched, where, you, could you possibly
7: need to be? Dr. Golfo's response to his dad wasn't what he wanted to hear, but he had to say it. Just because he was a company executive didn't mean that he got to take a day off after a devastating personal and professional crisis. To Dr. Golfo, being a company executive meant doing what had to be done. I have a
8: company full of people on the West Coast waiting to have a pre-launch meeting waiting for me waiting for me to tell them all that happened here and what happened here isn't good I have to get out there and I gotta I gotta
7: lead I gotta go out there and lead TV news never shows this next part of the lives of executives their raw humanity but dr. Golfo remembers this part maybe more clearly and vividly than anything else and
8: I cried I cried from Dulles to uh, whatever the name of the airport in San Diego is the whole time. I, uh, uh, I was just, I was, I, I can't explain what I was. I, I got to my hotel. Um, my hotel was on like the 13th or 14th floor and, and there were there was sliding doors and there were rails up, like four foot high rails. I just remember grabbing that rail and looking over the edge and like just saying to myself, it's a good thing there's rails here. Um, just, just,
7: just a horrible, horrible feeling The hotel was where the urology association was hosting its meeting and they were all the people who couldn't come to the trial Dr. Golfo ran into a few of the urologists in the hall who had been helping him with the drug and told them what had happened He was livid and I told him what happened he said but so and so doesn't even treat this disease
8: He got angry I told the second one same reaction I told the third one same reaction
7: and then, instead of dwelling, he started doing. And the plan was this. These guys are surgeons.
8: Urologists are surgeons. The last thing a surgeon wants is an internist telling them how to treat things. Okay? So what just happened? You had an internist, an oncologist, butting his nose in a surgical disease, superficial bladder cancer. So he did was... I was able to get 12 of the country's top urologic surgeons to go with me to the fda
7: and again dr golfo had found his perfect number 12. dr golfo and his 12 urologists went to the fda to meet with a senior administrator for what's called a supervisory review request to explain that it was wrong for oncologists to pass judgment on the disease treated by urologists, especially when the FDA prevented the urologists from even attending. The administrator agreed. And he sent Dr. Golvo and Anthra back to the very next panel meeting to restate their case for Valstar, something which was also brand spanking new in the history of the FDA. On September 1st, 1998, And without any new evidence, Valstar got a vote of 10 to 1, this time in favor. But it would turn out to be three months too late. By now, they'd become a pariah in the industry. What happened was the window of opportunity to raise money
8: closed. So even though we got the approval, a nuclear winter emerged. I'm sorry, descended upon the public markets to raise money. So we were not able to raise money. So now the company with a product approved, okay, so we have product approval and no money, what do we do? And you know, there was a debate uh, at the board level what should be done and um, so, uh, so the company basically fragmented and um, I left the company, I went on to something else. And then uh, the drug languished really
7: it would take more than three years for Valstar to get bought by another company and get into the hands of doctors and onto the bladders of patients. More than 14 years in all for Valstar. Those three lost years were vital for patients and Anthra. Tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. But because of the FDA's carelessness, after years of Anthra's carefulness, they weren't. Anther itself died, taking with it $25 to $30 million in investments, money that should have been turned into more money and allowed for reinvestment into more life-saving drugs. Dr. Mervyn Israel had two other drugs he wanted to create and test, which would now be postponed for years as a result of Anther's collapse. And the careers of nearly 30 people fell to pieces, despite the beautiful creation they had all forged. Dr. Golfo may have been the luckiest survivor of the anther debacle, as he became known as the man who could get things through the FDA. Dr. Golfo doesn't think it should be that way, though. Innovation shouldn't come down to one man. And it drives Dr. Golfo crazy.
8: It's terrible. Well, it should come down to does the product work. It should not come down to whether the process works. That It's not coming down to the product. It's coming down to many other things. What if you had someone who didn't prepare like as, as I did. It shouldn't depend on me. It should depend on the product. And it's getting down to where innovation is becoming a chance occurrence when it should be a rote occurrence.
7: Dr. Golfo, though, would soon go back to the FDA and shepherd another company through the approval process, a story he would write a book about called Innovation Breakdown, How the FDA and Wall Street Cripple Medical Advances. That story will bring you next. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm John Woods. Wow. Great
0: job, John, to the whole team. Just superb work. And by the way, Dr. Golfo is now the executive director of the Lewis Center for Healthcare at my alma mater, Fairleigh Dickinson University, where I did my undergraduate work. And there he shares his experiences in the medical industry. This is Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network. Org. Get this story. Get the link. Send it to friends.